Good afternoon. This is uh, Michael Vandervoort, and this is Labor Relatedly. It's October 30th. We got one day until the big Halloween holiday. And today we're going to hit a couple of different topics. The Creature Comforts Brewery uh, election. We're going to talk about SEMAX. We're going to talk about the NLRB and joint employer issues. And we're going to do that with, with my co-host, John Hyman, who is here with us. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Are you um you dressing up for Halloween? I, this is what I'm going as this old <laughs> that I got going on today, which no one can see, fortunately, only you. So no, I'm, uh, uh, we are going to dress up here, but I, I like, I don't have a costume. So, but we were, we were told if we cared to uh, dress up and come into the office on Tuesday, that would be fine. And everybody wants to have some fun. So we'll do they see. have to be like labor related costumes you have to dress up as like a starbucks i don't know like you know like i was thinking about maybe like a salt or tinfoil hat come as a conspiracy theorist or something like that but i i don't know i i really don't know um anyway so uh are you dressing up as for halloween i'm no i am i am a i am a notorious halloween scrooge so my kids are lucky they dress up so we don't yeah we don't do halloween i look out my my neighbor across the street does massive Halloween decorating every year. So I look out every night and at his and just think all that's going to come down in a couple of days. And then the Christmas decorations got to go up and just what a pain in the ass all that is. So no, we, we, um, I don't even think we're going to put out candy this year for the, for the kids coming around. So I used to put out a bowl and just say, help yourself. That was kind of my solution. I leave the light on <laughs> and as soon as the candy bowl disappeared, you know, I re either refill it or, when I was done, I just turned the light off. Um, the people who decorate like for every seasonal holiday, they change the tone of their house. I mean, there are there are a few people I know that are like that. I, that just boggles my mind. I can't. I don't have the time or the energy, I guess. To, to it's get that so much work, and we'll we always decorate the house for Christmas, and we'll find a, a weekend between now and Thanksgiving when the weather is decent, and we'll put the lights out. Um, but even that is, I mean, we throw some lights up on the trees and that's it. And, but there's people around here that they've, they're already decorating, you know, they get their ladders out, they put the lights, you know, Clark Griswold styled and yeah. uh, style and they start after Labor Day. And it's like, I just, I don't know where people find the time or the energy in their lives to do that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe we're just defective people. I don't know. Last time I, I, had Christmas I, I, th I think we have it right, but that's okay. Yeah. Last time I had a Christmas tree was like 2018. I mean, I live alone and, you know, the dog doesn't care. So anyway. All right. Well, let's get into the, sh the real uh, show because we've got plenty of time to talk about the holidays over the next couple of months because they're coming at us like a freight train. But um, so th let's start with your your neck of the woods, which is the the craft brewery. Um and Creature Comforts, which is in Athens, Georgia, there were, there was just recently uh, an election there, and the union uh, seemed like there was a lot of momentum, and then th there was a vote, and the, the employees chose to not vote the union in. So why don't you take it from there and kind of update us on you? So there's a couple different prevailing schools of thought on what happened and where it might go next. Yeah, so it wasn't really close. I mean, my understanding is there's about 60 people in the bargaining unit or in the in the proposed bargaining unit, the voting unit. Uh, 53 voted and by a vote of 32 to 21, so about 60-40, they voted, uh, the employees of Creature Comforts voted no for the union. Um, and there are um, really, I think, two 
competing narratives going on here as to why the union lost. You're you're right. There's a ton of momentum or there was a ton of momentum leading up to the election um, from the time the petition was filed earlier this year. Um, I think every school of thought thought the employees were going to win this election um, and then or the union was going to win the election and the union lost. Um, I mean, not not a complete blowout, but 60-40 isn't what I would call a close vote um, any way you look at it. And so, the, again, there, there, there's two real competing thought processes here as to why the union lost this election. Thought process one is that the employees were scared by or scared off by the unfair labor practices alleged that, that the brewery alleged to have committed between the time the petition was filed and the election. There were... Union organizers that lost their jobs, there were employees that lost shifts, there were scheduling changes, there were threats, um, all of which are wrapped up in several different unfair labor practices that are currently pending before the board. And we can talk in a second about what, what that might mean moving forward. So that's kind of school of thought number one. The countervailing school of thought and the one that most of the employees who have spoken seem to be putting forth is that they just lost confidence in the union. Uh, it was a union that was not being run by employees. It was being run by individuals outside of the brewery. It was it was an independent union, so not a union affiliated with any of the big nationals, but but um, but still one that was being uh, run and managed by individuals external to the brewery, so non-employees. They were disorganized. They had very few, very few people in leadership positions. So there was kind of one or one person kind of seemed to be running the whole union that wasn't very organized. Um, uh, from what I read, they had a charter or bylaws or a constitution that was just looked to be like a placeholder that was full of um, kind of uh, kind of nonsense language and typos and and didn't really make a whole lot of sense to the employees. So the employees. From what I read at the end of the day, just seemed to have lost faith that the union was a doing their job currently and B was going to be able to adequately do their job representing the employees after an election. Yeah, and that's interesting for for two reasons. And it and I'll have two questions. Well, a comment and at least one question for you. So the comment is, um, as you know, I came out of the grocery industry and have been following with a lot of interest the Trader Joe's. Um, situation where they've had like four stores organized in the last you know, six, seven months and and had a chance to listen to a <clears throat> an interview with one of the employees of the of the initial store at Trader of Trader Joe's in Hadley, Massachusetts, who um, which is the first store that was unionized like six months ago. And it's a very uh, Hadley is near Springfield, Mass. And it's very progressive, lots of universities, super liberal area. So there's like a lot of support in the community for this union. And still, the unlike Creature Comforts, there at Trader Joe's, the, the union retains majority support, although there's a pretty significant population in the store that are disgruntled. And it's largely seems to be, when you listen to their story, it's really about the way the union has conducted themselves. And so you've got these two independent, which is what links this together, is they're, they're both independent unions, somewhat perhaps lacking in sophistication about, you know, the next steps of labor relations and the way you have to build a relationship with the company if you're going to try to 
get a contract, et cetera. Um, I mean, it goes both ways, but the, the it's interesting to me that um, this is, you know, I mean, two doesn't yet make a trend, right? Two, two, two situations like this don't really make a trend yet. But this this is something that that we've been talking about at LRI, kind of you know warning about independent unions. Is it sounds cool, and it you know it it seems attractive and it builds a lot of energy early on, which is what we saw at Creature Comforts watching from thirty thousand feet. Same thing at Trader Joe's, but they still have a real hard time once they get beyond the organizing phase of of taking it anywhere else from there. Um, and, and so that, so it, I'd be interested in your thoughts there. And then I have a second question about yeah. the, probably the, the, what the board's going to do. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think I, I, I'm critical. I'm always critical of labor unions as a solution in a lot of cases, because I feel that employees are just replacing one, one corporate entity with another, with another corporate entity. Right. So they're, 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 they're changing one master for another. Um, but that said, the the failure of this particular labor union to act like a corporation is ultimately i think what seems to be what doomed them in this election there's um a political blog website in Athens Georgia which is where the brewery is has been following this election pretty closely and they spoke with a bunch of the employees after the election and one of them who spoke um uh, anonymously to this political reporter said that um the perception among the employees was that they were going to pay dues and had no confidence they were going to get anything of value in the, in return because the, because the union was so appeared to be so disorganized in how they mm-hmm. were how they were managing their own affairs, and so I I, I can be critical of the concept of um, you know trading one corporation for another corporation and who's kind of looking out for the employees, um, but on the other hand you at least have to be show some semblance of professionalism what you're doing here so that the employees have comfort that if and when they pay you dues, they're going to get value in return. And, and, you know, we see that with, you know, with Starbucks and with Amazon and with some of these other employee led unions, they get the organize, they, they get the organizing part, right here. They didn't with, with this, with this particular brewery, but in a lot of cases they get the organizing part, right. And, when they get down to the brass tacks of like negotiating that first contract is where the lack of experience, the lack of professionalism um, and the lack of organization really shines through because mm-hmm. they just don't have the, the structure, the institutional knowledge and the experience in place to get that done. Yeah. So Starbucks obviously has the SEIU and Worker United behind them, even though they portray themselves as largely a, a barista run union. So that's, that's kind of a one-off. They have a huge amount of success in organizing, but still no contracts, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, ALU, uh, Chris, Christian Smalls and the Amazon Labor Union, that's the biggest and most successful example of an independent union uh, organizing against a mammoth giant corporation. But that happened a year ago, and they've had a number of campaigns since, and they've had a couple of elections since, and, and they've still only got that one victory in Staten Island, which is not insignificant, but it's the only thing they've been able to deliver on thus far with even with all the time and energy they've expended going elsewhere. And they don't still they still don't have a contract. So you I guess if you take it in that framework, you got ALU, Starbucks, if you want to lump that in, uh, Trader Joe's, you know, creature comforts, and there's probably a few others that we haven't touched on. 
no, none of them, virtually zero, have achieved a contract at this point. So this is like this is like the wall that the, they they're not able to make their way around at this point. So it's a kind of daunting. Um, not sure there's a, a short-term solution for them on that either, but that that's not really where I want to go right now. Let's talk about creature comforts and Semex, which we covered. Joyce Silk turned into Semex. We covered Semex in a, a past show, which is the new uh, new decision by the board that creates a, a kind of a new form of bargaining order uh, if you commit unfair labor practices. And you mentioned the creature comforts that there were a number of ULPs filed. So does this look like it's going to shape up to be perhaps a Semex situation, or do you not know at this point? I mean, it's hard to say if I was, if I was the union and again, we're not dealing with a professional union here, or even a we're dealing with an independent union that doesn't even appear to have a professional union behind it. So I don't know what kind of legal advice they're getting, but if I was the lawyer advising this labor union, um, I would be pushing it to go for a, a, a Semex bargaining order here. Um, ALJs are starting to hand these out in cases. Um, so for, uh, for those that uh, first, so for a quick refresher in the Semex case, um, part of what the board held was that instead of ordering a rerun election in cases in which there are unfair labor practices committed during the during the um, organizing or pre-election uh, uh, process, um, uh, rather than remedying those ULPs with an order for a rerun election. The board said we're going to remedy them um, with a with a bargaining order, um, and so it, and the creature comforts organizing campaign, at least the employees allege that there were numerous unfair labor practices committed during that campaign. There were organizers that were fired. There were threats that were made. Um, other unfair labor practices alleged to have been committed, which are currently pending with the board. And if I was the union here, I would be going, I, I would be filing a separate charge with the NLRB seeking a bargaining order um, mm -hmm. under Semex to say you, 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 it was impossible for us to have a fair election because of these unfair labor practices committed. And so or now you, you can't put the cart before the horse. You need to have a finding on the unfair labor practices first, I think. Um, but mm -hmm. You know, but if if the board finds unfair labor practices were committed, the remedy I'd be asking for here would be a would would be a bargaining order. And that that is what I think that's what businesses fear right now is that um, you know in simply conducting business during a campaign and maybe making some decisions based on conduct and during the campaign by individuals, they're going to wind up with a bargaining order no matter what they do. But that's going to, I mean, like I, it's impossible to see how Starbucks won't get many bargaining orders, uh, given the, just the sheer volume of ULPs that they have in front of them. And the fact that they've lost some of those already, they'll probably get a bunch of these orders. Or will Starbucks I'm get, or will be, Starbucks get one bargaining order or order ordering it to bargain on a nationwide basis? It could be 500 I mean, bargain. 500. Not, I mean, if the board wants to be, that's a great call out. Yeah, yeah that, that's a great call out. <laughs> that is definitely Given not it. out of the realm of possibility with this board that the remedy this board is going to craft is um, Starbucks, you clearly have a corporate wide pattern practice of 
committing unfair labor practices to try and to try and squash this union. So you're now stuck with a bargaining order nationwide. Yeah. And, and ironically, they've already been bargaining at some level in different yeah. places. And in fact, their their defense about bargaining when they get accused of lack of bargaining or the slow walk in bargaining is that it's it's the union that won't accept dates and won't give ground on some of the some of the things of hybrid hard hybrid bargaining and stuff. But yeah, it certainly is not beyond the realm of possibility with this board that they would get get an order to bargain completely complete unit wide and perhaps do it in a hybrid manner. That would be worst case scenario, I guess. But anyway, still no uh, no obligation to give them a contract though. So none, uh, none. Interesting, but interesting stuff. So. You know, but 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 I think I think the takeaway here, if we look at the the one or two semex orders that have already come down from a from administrative law judges and what we think might happen maybe at Starbucks and what might happen at Creature Comforts and you know in other workplaces i think this is what the future of union union organizing at least as long as semex is the law of the land is going to look like is you're going to the employer very well might win an election but end up losing anyway because mm-hmm. it's going to it's going to the, the union's going to allege unfair labor. The, the union might try and create unfair labor practices, right? Um, it might try and bait the employer into committing unfair, unfair labor practices in order to try and uh, kind of hedge its bets and give itself some back end guarantees with this with with this extraordinary remedy. Well, I was at Q a couple of weeks ago and had uh, had dinner with an attorney. Um, and I forget the name of the company. I probably shouldn't say it anyway, but I had dinner with an attorney who received one of the very first Semex bargaining orders. And it was the exact same situation that they're facing at Creature Comforts, where it was uh, it was uh, an election petition for election was filed. The election was held. The employer won. Uh, there were ULPs present. The board came back and said, oh, sorry, Semex bargaining order. You got to you got to commence bargaining because you you know, you messed up. So they had to go back as a company and explain to the people who had just voted against being unionized. So they had they had indicated their will. Um, they had to go back and communicate, sorry, the vote didn't really count. We're still going to have to recognize the union and start bargaining. And my understanding of the meeting or the result that came out in that meeting was that the employees were actually pissed off about it. That they felt that they feel now like the union's being shoved down their throat. You know, well, they didn't... I think that's that, that's a great point, and is really I think the overarching point or the overarching takeaway here is if, if the goal of the National Labor Relations Act is to secure the majority will of of employees, whatever that will is, whether it's pro union or or anti union, whatever that we want to be organized or we don't want to be organized that this process is supposed to help ensure that the will of employees is what's carried out and what's met. How, do, how does, how does Semex, how does Semex accomplish that? I mean, it does. Yeah. I'm, 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 you know, my, my answer. It's is a rhetorical of, question. Yeah. In, yeah, my answer is embedded in the question. It doesn't, right. You have <laughs> here, I think a pretty overwhelming rebuke of the union you know 60 percent to 40 percent that these employees did not want a labor union and yet they still might have one shoved down their throat which to me um is not what is not the the goal this act is supposed to achieve and and based on scenario one that you brought up 
it may be a situation where people voted against the union, not because they were intimidated by the company, but rather because they did not appreciate or fully trust the leadership of the union, the sort of informal leaders that that became formal leaders in the union movement and led, led to say they may have voted against them, right? More so than against the company. We don't know speculation, but they, that might be why they chose not to be represented by this group. Doesn't mean they don't want a union or there's all kinds of other questions, but none of that really factors in. It's just the law. So we, we shall see. Um, I was going to touch next, I think, uh, on joint employer. So that other, that's what, you know, this things slowed down for a minute, like a second and a half, more, more than a minute. Um, we had the Semex and a bunch of other things come rolling out all at the same time, spent some time talking about that. We knew this next thing that we're going to talk about, which is joint employer. We knew this was coming and it's not the first time the board has tried to do this. But again, they've kind of they've they've put themselves in a situation where they're, they've announced a, a, through rulemaking a new standard, which is very confusing, and which seems to be opposed by many many people in the in the business world. Not surprisingly, but why don't you why don't you walk us through what the joint employer rule looks like and kind of what the, how the standard what it was and how it's changed. Well, I mean, historically, and it, it, the board has gone back and forth um, in terms of what joint employment means. Um, we had, you know, does, do both employers have to exercise direct control over the, over the you know, common, for lack of a better description, common group of employees does some amount of indirect or reserved control. Does that, you know, does that meet the, does that meet the test? And, and the board has gone back and forth and the NLR, the NLRB put out a notice of proposed rulemaking to kind of announce a new standard last year. Um, and the final rule was finally published last week, um, and the board said a couple of things. It said, um, number one, two employers will be considered to be joint employers if they have an employment relationship with the employees and then share or co-determine or co at least one of seven predefined terms and conditions of employment. So it's wages, benefits, or compensation, hours of work and scheduling, assignment of duties to be performed, supervision of the performance of work duties, work rules and directions governing the manner, means, and methods of the performance of those duties and grounds for discipline, tenure of employment, including hiring and discharge, um, and working conditions related to safety and health of employees. If if both employers on each side of the joint employer equation um, satisfy at least one of those seven, then the two employers are going to be deemed to be joint employers. And we'll talk in a second about what that means. Um, the NLRB then separately said that um, direct, indirect, or reserved control will suffice. So if there's control that might not be exercised, but reserved in a contract, like in a franchise agreement, for example, that's enough. Um, indirect or like perceived control is enough or actual direct control over those terms and conditions of those terms and conditions of employment. And then in terms of what this means, I mean, it means uh, one, it's going to mean that both ends of the joint employer relationship, for example, would be jointly and severally liable for unfair labor practices. So one would be liable for the unfair labor practice committed by the other. But I think more significantly, is it's going to impose, according to the 
the rule as published by the NLRB, it's going to it's going to impose a bargaining relationship on both. So, for example, if I am McDonald's Corporation and one of my franchised lo- the, the employees of one of my franchise locations, so I don't own the store, I just franchise the rights to a third party, that store gets unionized, then I, as McDonald's Corporation, under this rule, is almost certainly or I am almost certainly going to have a an obligation to sit at the bargaining table to negotiate terms and conditions of employment for a group of employees that I don't employ because they're not my employees. Mm-hmm. I don't cut their paycheck. I don't pay their benefits. Um, I don't schedule them. Um, but because of how loose this rule is and how it defines you know, the terms and conditions of employment and by its heavy reliance on indirect or reserved control as sufficing, um, a, a franchisor, for example, is going to end up with a collective bargaining obligation towards the employees of its of its franchisee, um, which is, uh, in my view, an absolute an absolute disaster. Um, it would also yeah, ha- it would also have, it, it would also have impacts like, um, like if you have a la- if if you have a if you have a labor dispute with your with your uh, like the franchisee your employer. You you can't go pick at McDonald's corporate. Um, if they're a joint employer, you probably can, right? Because the secondary boycott rules aren't going to apply because they're the employer. So it's um it's it's particularly in the world of franchise businesses, it is this is paradigm shifting. This also um, has the potential, and especially given the boards like their retroactivity, you know, till the dawning of time and all those kind of orders. This has the, the the potential to reach, um, you know, contractors and in, in inside companies that aren't franchises, right? A lot of companies use contractors at different levels, and I mean, you can make Uber for their drivers or whatever, but also just companies that hire ten ninety nine consultants to augment their additional workforce. So this can this can hit employers at any size, any level. Alphabet oh, yep. has already been hit by yep. this. Yep. Um, staffing staffing agencies, contractors. Um, I yep. think, you know, general contractors and subs, um, there are innumerable traditional um, contractor, you know, contract-based relationships between businesses um, uh, in the provision of, in the provision of workers that this has the potential to impact. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and so the, the, I guess the point, the takeaway, as you said a second ago, in the other side, situation takeaway there is this isn't something that you can assume is largely going to impact franchisees or, or whatever it can impact you and it, any any employer of any size can be impacted by this because almost every company at some time uses a contractor as you've set up from a manpower or temp agency or something like that and if your contracts aren't right and the way you or the way you manage that person isn't right and sorry i've got a little bit of allergy thing going on here today um <laughs> It can turn into a it can turn into an extended legal battle. Um, we don't we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but it, this is something that don't don't assume it's just big companies or companies that employ a lot of ten ninety nine employers. It, it can hit it can hit any employer of any size. So make as as we talk about with handbooks and all these other things, make sure your contract your supplier contracts are right. Make sure they're on point. So it's another uh, another notch in the uh, employment 
Lawyer Security Act that it's unofficial, but the the board's been great for you guys uh, to get keep your work flowing in on this kind of stuff. So has not been awful. Sorry, has not been awful. I had I have to rib you being not an attorney and and not an yeah. Anyway, um, there are uh, there's quite a bit of alarm in the and quite a bit of reaction in the business community. Uh, the chamber has. Is, is, is very upset over this implementation. Littler, uh, which is very active in the franchise world, um, ha, is talking about litigation. Um, Senator Senators Manchin and Cassidy, so it's bipartisan, are talking about invoking the Congressional Review Act, which probably is futile with Joe Biden as president. He would probably veto anything, even if it made it through both houses. But there's a lot of response to this. The litigation is probably the most likely thing. It, the the previous rulemaking was set aside, at least in part, and then the board under Trump did a revision. This will certainly be challenged. We don't know what the outcome will be, but it's a big reach, and courts these days tend to not like these big agency reaches, so we might see some of this at least set aside. But in the meantime, it's still the law, just like some acts, and so you're going to have to manage your business accordingly. Until a court says otherwise. Yep. Yep. And then uh, anything else on that, on joint employer? Or did we kind of hit the no, high points? No, I think we adequately. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult technical uh, discussion. Hey, you've got balloons going off for some reason. No one will ever see that. But on Zoom, you just had balloons launched. I had balloons going off? <laughs> yeah. I, I saw somebody else comment on that, that they, they were like, where did those balloons come hey, from? And why, are, why am I seeing them? I don't know. Anyway, let's Weird. not lose the okay. focus. No, we're good. Show. All right. Just, just for just for clarity, we record uh, we record these calls on Zoom, so John and I can see each other. But we only put out the audio portion from Zoom. But there was a digital balloon explosion in, over in front of his face, so it's kind of weird. Startled me. Um, the last big thing this has been around. We haven't really talked about this at all. Is the Big Three, the the UAW and the Detroit Big Three. Um, there have been, you know, they were in negotiations, they, they went on strike, they've been out give or take 50-ish days, right, right about now. And as of about nine o'clock this morning, I think you told me, and, and I went and checked it out, it appears as if they have reached tentative agreements with GM, Stellantis, and Ford, um, which will end, assuming ratification, will end the strike. Um, this was a uh, th this was the second major union, the first being UPS and the Teamsters. This was the second major bargaining situation of, of 2023 with really large unions and really, really large employers. And in both situations, the unions uh, seemingly, I mean, they're claiming the, the best contracts ever in the history of the all mankind maybe maybe not but th this what they achieved with the with the big three is definitely not a slackers agreement they got a lot of stuff here um and they did it with a what they called the stand-up strike and we spent a lot of time not you and i but in the world of labor relations we spent a lot of time talking about whether the stand-up strike strategy was a good one or a bad one but uh, I, I will I will just say my opinion at the end of it is what I saw in the the only the only the only uh, set of highlights that's been actually released thus far is from Ford and that happened over the weekend so I was I've read through that they got like twenty five percent general wage increases over a four and a half year period it's eleven percent year one three percent three percent three percent and then five 
They got COLA back after 14 years. They got some uh, agreements on job security for EV plants. They got some some new job new job hiring at at existing facilities, and they got rid of tears. So there's a and a lot more. There's a lot more in there, but those are some of the major things. From from, so what, I've read, big, from what I've read preliminarily, the, the other two contracts seem to track that. So I think we're looking. Yeah, they're pretty much a pattern. It, yeah. Yeah, it, it, there's probably very varying differences. They didn't get the 40% wage increase they initially asked for. They didn't get the 32-hour work week or the four-day work week. They dropped those demands. I don't think they ever thought they were going to get those to begin with, but they got a lot. So I guess two questions, John. What's your take on what's where we're at with this? And and, and you know, like how did they do? Was it was it better than you thought? Or and two, where do where do we go from here? Where does this lead to in going into 2024? I mean, I think they did a great job. Um, I think they got, I think it's an outstanding contract for the workers. I think um, I think it demonstrates, I think, the power of the strike. Um, I think particularly when you're talking about like auto plant employees, these are not necessarily employees that you can easily replace at the drop of a hat, right? These are highly skilled workers. You can't just... You can't bring in a bunch of permanent replacements and throw them on an auto line and expect them to be able to, you know, start producing cars on day one. And so the I think the I think the employees had a tremendous amount of leverage here. And I think at the end of the day, got themselves a, a really, really a really good deal. Um, and given the high uh uh level of publicity that this strike got, the the UPS strike got, the uh the the uh, uh, right technically that's a bag after it continues to get. Um, yep. I, I think you're going to see. I mean, hot, I think you're going to see hot strike summer probably carry over into 2024. Would be my guess as employees yeah, try. So. Uh, yeah. There wasn't a strike at UPS. That that was the big difference. Or the, the threat. I'm sorry. The threat. Threat. The, the threat of a strike. Yeah. Correct. Not not Correct. not to say. Oh, John, you're wrong. But they they did leverage the threat of a strike against. They certainly the whole, did. 340,000 employees at UPS, they leveraged UPS into a similar agreement. Do not, do not mess with, with my ability to get my Amazon prime delivered next day is what, is what they were, is, is, is really the, 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 the giant stick they were carrying around. We, we, um, we can't, um, we can't live without our instant gratification these days, even when it comes to the package delivery. So I know I, I'm like, why isn't it here? It said it was coming today. It didn't get there till Wednesday. What the hell? You know, I know, I know, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of labor unions, but damn it, man, give them what they want to keep my prime flowing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a complete aside and wasn't on our, on our agenda, but one of my former employers, the United States postal service, another large package delivery purveyor of services um, is currently uh, has an expired contract with the National Association of Letter Carriers, and they're currently negotiating um, contract. And I read an interesting article on Labor Notes, which is a labor-leaning uh, website, criticizing the leadership of the United States Postal Service uh, and the National Association of Letter Carriers, my former union, for engaging in old-style bargaining. They're like, what are you saying? What's going on at the table? Well, why aren't you giving us up? 
um, this notion of, you know, Sean Fain going on Facebook live every Friday and giving an update and announcing where the next strike was going to be and all this. So we were living in the social media era of labor relations these days where everything is open. You know, everything is observed through through Zoom. U.S. Postal Service and the, and the National Association of Letter Carriers doing it old style and they're being criticized by their members and employees for not being openly transparent about what's being said at the table. I thought that was fascinating because that's the way I'm used to go today. So anyway, um, so I agree with this, with the, that the strike trend will continue. This is one of the larger years for strikes and it's not over yet. You've got a casino in Detroit. You've got Mack truck that's owned by Volvo represented by the UAW. You've got a bunch of healthcare. There's a lot of people on strike uh, sag after uh, going into their second or third month. I'll definitely think that will carry over into 2024, but I'm going to raise you one. I think the fact that these unions have demonstrated an ability to leverage um, their strength against large employers is also going to continue to push the the union organizing that we see going into 2024. It's been big. It's been busier this year in 2023 than it had than it was in 2022, even with Starbucks, like more widespread, more uh, maybe not as many uh, petitions but wider, wider uh, number of companies being impacted. And I think we'll continue to see that grow heading at least into the first quarter or the first couple of ha- the first half of 2024. And then we'll see where it goes from there. Still well, I got this right. issue. I mean, I think- Got to get contracts. Yeah, you got to get contracts. But I think at least on the organizing side, these, these deals are proof of concept for the labor unions. It's, this mm-hmm. is what we can do for you if you vote us in, right? We can get mm-hmm. you, right- Right. So, right. Yeah. You, you know, UAW got their members these pay increases, right? UPS threatened to strike and right. they got these pay increases, right? Flight attendants threatened to walk out and they got these pay increases, right? So, let's, you know, this is what we can do for you. Just give us the chance to show you what we can do. And, and I think you're 100%. And that's correct. the, that's the last thing I want to touch on because Fane mentioned this yesterday. He talked about next time we come around in April, April 30th. 2028, when this contract expires, we're not going to be negotiating for the big three. We're going to be negotiating for the big five or the big six because we're going to go over and organize BMW or Honda or Nissan, you know, so on. We'll see. They've tried before and, ha- and have failed, but this is a this is a big win and it's a good selling tool. So I think it'll probably spur interest and certainly gain attention and put pressure on those Southern employers that are from, uh, you know, the transplants, as they call them, the Southern transplants, those external uh, companies, not from the U.S. that have built significant presence in the, the U.S. South. I think they're going to have a hefty year next year as well. So any, uh, I know you got to go because you got a client calling about seven minutes. I don't want to hold you up. You got any final thoughts? Uh, no, I am. I am good on my end. I will. Um maybe stop at Starbucks on my way to pick my kids up at school. Maybe are the, are, are, are the, are the holiday cups out yet? I don't even know. November 16th from my okay. understanding, which is a day of protest by the Starbucks workers. Union oh, that's right. Red yes. Billion. Yes. Yes. So yes. Starbucks calls it red, red cup, red cup day. And they call it red cup rebellion. And interestingly, there's a call on November 9th where the allies of the Starbucks workers union are going to meet to discuss their activities. And one of the big supporters, one of their big allies is UAW. So the UAW is sticking its nose in everywhere these days. And I guess with good reason, they're living, they're they got working some, they got some, some muscles stuff. to flex at this point. They might as well flex them. 
That's right. You better flex because they had they had several really horrible bad years before this year. So anyway, all right. Well, John, it was great to do a show. Catch up with you soon. I'll I'll get this thing up and uh, launched uh, and have a great rest of the week. Okay. You too. Cheers. Sure.